Good morning and welcome to Matt Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. I bet you hadn't heard this uh, track before, uh, you know, for a while. Uh, it normally takes us a month to get our act together again, but this t this time it's taken us two months. But don't worry because I have um, a great guest lined up for you. Um, her name is Dr. Kristen Reimer and she is a lecturer in restorative justice and relational ped pe pedagogies at Monash University. And we're going to be talking today about, um, you know, restorative justice, which is something that I really like. <laughs> I think everyone should like. So um, we're going to um, play the first music selection uh, chosen by her, and then we'll be back with our interview. So enjoy this and see if you already knew it. Wow, what did you think of that? That's fantastic. That was um, Buffy St. Mary, Mary, and the song was called We Are Circling. And I had never heard of this uh, band. Maybe, uh, Kristen, you can tell me a little bit about it. Sure. Um, so I actually had a lot of fun choosing these songs because I crowdsourced it. I, I sent out the, um, the call to my Facebook friends. Um, first of all, my Canadian friends, since I'm from Canada, and I wanted to play a little bit of Canadian content on the show today, um, but also to my restorative justice um, friends and community and when, what songs for them are restorative justice songs. And so this one came from one of my Canadian restorative justice um, colleagues and friends and mentors, uh, Dorothy Vandering. And so Buffy St. Marie, she's a Canadian, um, she's an indigenous, indigenous woman, she's Cree, um, a singer-songwriter. She's been um, singing and writing since the 60s. Um, she's always sort of been on the uh, side of resistance, doing things a bit different, disrupting the status quo. And so this is one of her songs. And the circling idea is pretty central to restorative justice philosophy. So it's both about the resistance and the, and the disrupting, but also about coming together and valuing community. Well, I think that's a great starting choice. Uh, you have set the bar pretty high, so <laughs> let's make let's see if um, the rest of the selections are as good. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> All crowdsourced. <laughs> All right. So uh, first of all, let's remind our listeners. So this is Mad Village. It is now what six minutes past nine. Um, it has taken us a while to get back to the swing of things, but um, our guest this morning is Dr. Kristen Reimer. She is a lecturer at Monash University on restorative justice. So, first of all, um, you have already mentioned that you come from Canada. Mm -hmm. So, maybe tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Australia. All right. Um, well, I've been here for three years now. Um, so, we came. I came with my husband and our young child, who was just over a year when we got here. He's now lived more of his life in Australia than Canada. <laughs> um, but... Um, so we came, we came actually in January, which is a pretty tough time to come since it was minus 25 in <laughs> Ottawa when we left, <laughs> the day we left, and it was plus 35 when we arrived here. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty big disruption <laughs> for our own um, physicality. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm here. I, I've come to um, join Monash University in the Faculty of Education. So for me, I just finished my PhD in Ottawa a few months before that, and this was a wonderful opportunity that opened up um, for a position and in terms of my own interest in restorative justice to be in Australia. So um, perhaps can we go back to Canada for a little while? <laughs> sure. And um, not, not, not 
not straight to the time when you were doing your PhD, but I, w I want to go maybe a little bit before. So mm. I want to go back to where you grew up and, and just trying to understand what led you to this interest in restorative justice in the first place. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up about an hour outside of Toronto um, and for most of my life lived on a, a small farm. My dad, he was a high school teacher, but also he was a biology teacher. So he had a great interest in in farming, um, mostly vegetables and fruit. And so we had a great little property that, that I grew up on. Um, my interest really in restorative justice did start as a kid. Um, so I grew up in a community um, that is a Mennonite community. Yeah. And that's, you, you're familiar? All right. But, but, uh, <laughs> but not, not many yeah, in Australia would be because there's really no Mennonite communities here. Um, so Mennonites sort of the stereotypical um, version of Mennonites is if you think about, you can see in documentaries or in TV shows about the States and Canada, sometimes you see people who use horse and buggies um, and dress very traditionally. Um, and those are, some of those are Amish and some of those are Mennonite, but they have the same sort of roots. I uh, grew up in a more modern Mennonite community, but we have the same sort of um, philosophy and faith and ideas as well. And so... Um, it is, a, it is a religion, it's a Christian religion, but it's also sort of a culture. And so some of the key ideas are social justice-oriented ideas, um, a sense of community as being um, incredibly important, both supporting those within the community, but also outside of the community as well. And um, a sense that things don't have to be necessarily the way they are put forward in the mainstream. So always kind of looking in from the outside to say there's other ways to do things. So we're kind of need to think about the bigger picture in terms of justice and in terms of um, love and in terms of connection um, and in terms of ethicals, ways of, of living. And so restorative justice was something that was actually talked about when I was a kid um, as in some ways a pretty natural and common sense way to approach issues of harm, that um, we bring people together who are most affected by a harm. That's sort of the core central idea of restorative justice. Um, but also that it is it is sort of a way to um, think differently about how to do things. Wow, so many questions. This interest is even more interesting, interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> the bar was already pretty high. <laughs> now, so before we jump into restorative justice, just one more question about the Mennonite community. So are you still, um, is that something that you're still continuing with your own family as well? Um, it is, in a way. I mean, it is still part, absolutely, of my faith and, and who I am centrally. Um, I find it much more difficult to do that without a community around me. And, and so it's it's simply part of the way that we are. Um, my husband did not grow up in a Mennonite community, but very much appreciates and supports me in that. Um, but it is, it, is, it is a different thing. This is the first time, really, that I've lived for an extended time sort of outside of that community. So it, it's been interesting for me to kind of explore that in my own self. Like, who am I when I'm not mm. in, physically located within that community? It will also be amazing when you're... When your is it your son? Yes. Uh, visits uh, his grandparents over mm -hmm. there. That, mm -hmm. that will be quite amazing for him as well. Yes, he loves he loves his oma and opa and <laughs> visiting on the farm for sure. All right, so um, let's jump into the topic of restorative justice. So first of all, you know, we uh, in this show we we have had many guests who 
work in areas very related to restorative justice. And uh, I remember, for example, talking to um, an incredible chap. His name is Russell Marx. I mm -hmm. don't know if you've... Um, uh, you know, Russell wrote this incredible book called um, Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he always said was that we, we have a paradigm of, you know, actions and consequences and things mm. like that. But then if you actually look at who um, ends up in the criminal justice system, generally speaking, there are people who have suffered an incredible amount. Mm. And, um, you know, he's su suggesting that this system really doesn't work for, for them or for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess perhaps we can start the conversation by asking you, about what is wrong with the traditional ways in which we have done things. Hmm. Well, I think I think that's just it. That um, there are reasons why we've set up these systems, um, but I think the reasons can sometimes get lost in the system sort of perpetuating itself. So there's reasons why we have laws, or in schools, there's reason why we have rules, um, and they are mainly to keep us safe. Um, to figure out ways to live with one another um, where we can, um, we can all thrive in different ways. Um, and so those are, those are important reasons to have on the laws, on the rules, on the, the, the punishments if we don't fit into those, those rules and those laws and we forget about the actual needs of our individuals within the community and the community itself. And I think if we kind of go back to um, first principles and focus on those things, the system doesn't have to be the way that it is. Because as, as you've said, with Russell Marx um, and his work, um, it's, there are, to be involved in the system, um, they don't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to go do something that's going to break the law. There's a whole history that's happened there. There's a whole history of us perhaps um, disadvantaging people or putting them into places or, or harming them or um, traumatizing people that then um, build and build and lead to, to things. And if we're not actually dealing with some of those roots of those issues, the beginnings, the histories, the complexities of it, but simply simplifying it, really, and saying, okay, you've done this, therefore this will happen. Um, and even with that, there's a lot of issues because we know from many studies that punishment does not often do what we want it to do. So we want it to make someone stop what they're doing, and we want it to deter other people from doing the same thing. We want it to keep um, the majority safe. But often it just sort of um, um, harms the people that we're punishing, doesn't necessarily make us into a safer community because we're not thinking about the ways that we need to think through how to live together and how to connect with one another. Yeah, and, and, and just a, a very brief reminder about mm -hmm. that. We've talked uh, about this very, very often on this show. Um, you know, our current uh, recidivism rate in Victoria for people who have been to prison is about, you know, always hovers around 20, uh, 50%. So mm. basically, within two years of uh, being released from prison, people tend to go back. Mm. Obviously, that doesn't sound like it's a very successful uh, intervention. Right. Um, so, um, for the sake of our listeners who are listening today, um, how would you describe um, restorative justice to mm. them, you know, in a way that they understand? You know, what is, what is this about? How does it work on the ground? Sure. And so, I should say, too, that my, my work is mostly in schools. And mm. so, um, the way that I see restorative justice, I, I, I talk about in that context. Sure. Um, so, restorative justice 
for me is really about the relationships and it's about just um, healthy, supportive relationships. And so in schools, what does that look like? How do we how do we really find ways that we can live as a learning community in a school? And so restorative justice is about building those relationships. It's about creating the conditions within a classroom for those to be just and ethical relationships. And it's about when something happens. Um, so when someone does something to someone, as they will do, because we're humans, um, then what are the processes that we have in place to make sure that we can deal with that constructively and in an educational way too. There's a, there seems to often be a sort of a false separation between what is quote-unquote discipline in schools and what is educational. Yeah. But it's all educational. It's about us communicating with one another. It's about figuring out the, the needs that people have and about figuring out how do we thrive individually and collectively. Are you suggesting that school is teaching kids how to live in this world as well? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> there is a great, um, there's a, uh, I just looked at it before coming in here, um, a blog out today on, um, in an education, education matters um, blog looking at that we've often are right now forgetting the why of school. Why are we educating our, our children? And we focus on the how and the testing of that. But to, to really think about why, you know, because we are, it is about, it's about our society. It's about our, our, our world. That, um, it's all very well to deal with an incident, but it sounds like there's also a lot of things that you can do mm. to, um, I guess, prepare for that incident not to happen or for to minimize the intensity or the seriousness of things like that. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, I think when people think about restorative justice, they often think about it dealing just with that one incident, that something's happened and we're going to bring together the people um, that were involved and we'll figure out what, what to do next. And that's, that's very powerful and that's something that's quite unique about restorative processes. But restorative justice is a philosophy and it's a way of being. And so it's, it's I think the most powerful part of it is the proactive part. And so um, from the very first moment we walk into that classroom or into that school together, you know, who do we want to be? Who do we want to be in this classroom? Um, how can we help each person in this classroom be who they want to be and do that as a community as well? And it's about learning the skills um, that are involved with that, but it's about, um, it's about modeling that day in and day out and not shying away from just the difficult conversations that happen every day. Because if we get used to actually being honest and talking about things that are frustrating, that are um, hurtful, that are, um, that are harming one another in small ways, then we can actually build up the resources within ourselves and the trust between people and the trust in ourselves that we can be honest in a situation to actually deal with some of the bigger stuff too. So the one-on-one the -on -one incidents are important about in terms of having processes that we understand and can work through, but it does, it, it's not if, it's, if that's a one-off thing, as if you're just doing it day in and day out, and that's simply the way that we are together. You, you talked before about circling, mm. Mm, and I know that many schools that are active in, in this area of restorative justice, uh, they may start the day with a morning circle, for example. Mm. And what would be the purpose of that? Absolutely. Circles are, are very powerful. Um, just the physical, um, the physicality of the circle is, is very simple, but also a real profound 
difference than sitting in rows. So if we all get together in a circle um, as students and the teacher um, on the same level, and that's it, we're on the same level. There's no hierarchy. We are, there's no one that someone is just looking at, directing their attention to. We direct our attention to one person at a time as we move through the circle. So I, I conduct um, pretty much all of my university classes in circle, as much as I can, depending on the <laughs> movability of the furniture. But uh, for one, it disrupts things a bit. It shakes people up. It puts you in an uncomfortable and vulnerable position, um, which is not of course, what we always want to put people into, but thing about learning and education that does require some discomfort too, requires you to risk and hopefully to be risking in a space that is as supportive I think the as possible. The experts call this the zone of proximal development. Mm. I think that's basically a place where you are being pushed, but that's right. pushed in a way that you're not too... Um, uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's the spot where you can we can grow and develop and where your things are heightened a bit. So you're you're paying attention in a different different sort of way. Uh, another thing that happens in the circle that I'm really interested in is that in the circle you you generally um, start by greeting each other and mm -hmm. to um, you know by calling people's names. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also something w which is quite powerful certainly for a lot of the kids that we work with because mm. they are not often used to hearing their names uh, pronounced in a positive way. Mm. Um, and also, you know, the, the eye contact that comes with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there is something about that in terms of um, noticing the dignity of each person that was, is within that circle and, and valuing the dignity of each person as well. And also simply the sense um, that we're in this together. And so, you know, everything that we're doing is a co-construction well, I was going to ask you about that as well. Um, don't you think that Circle also has the ability to uh, be able to do a scan of the room and, and to mm. find out who uh, perhaps may need a bit of extra support on that particular day? And also the sense that, again, together we can support this person who may not be feeling incredibly well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that may not come out at the beginning of the year, but I mean, as you get to know one another, trust one another, that comes out more and more. Um, and even um, in my university classes, I mean, it can be, schooling can be a very anonymous thing. It, it's not that hard to become invisible. And that, that can be in primary, secondary, university level. And there is something about the visibility of that circle um, that I think for many people, um, at least the feedback I've gotten is maybe not at the start, but toward the middle, toward the end of the semester or whatever, um, that for many people, it's it's a very um, life-giving sort of thing to be noticed and to be visible um, in that space. Um, your voice in different ways. That there are many, they, so the invisibility part too, there's many um, students and teachers will know this, that I mean, they're, they're not being disruptive, so they're not getting noticed in that way. Um, but they're also getting not getting noticed in other ways. And if you're if you're asking a question where they have to actually um, risk and put forward and put their hand up, they're not going to do it. But if the space is passed to them in the circle, and they don't have to reach for it, it's given to them. They're much more likely to actually start to practice using using their voice and using it in different ways. And again, that might not be the first couple of times that circle is done, but as that trust is built over time. 
You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM, and our guest this morning is Dr. Kristen Reimer from Monash University. And I think it is time to play another music break. Um, so uh, this is uh, Kristen's second selection, and we can ask her about it when we come back. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Uh, Kristen, can you tell us what uh, we heard before before that sponsorship break? Sure. So that was the Tragically Hip, and they were singing a song called Wheat Kings. And um, the Tragically Hip is sort of a, an iconic um, Canadian band, but mostly from the 90s. Um, but this, this song is really interesting because it's um, there was a, a case in Canada in the 70s, a, a man named David uh, Milgard. Um, he was 17 and he was convicted of uh, murdering um, a young nursing student. Um, and he spent 23 years in jail. Uh, he was given a life sentence. Um, and through the whole time, um, um, insisted on his innocence, and his mother was very vocal um, in the media during that time. And after 23 years, he it was proven that he was innocent. Um, there was DNA tests that were brought out at that time. And so um, the Tragically Hip wrote this song about him and his case, and it was this song came out the year that he was released from prison, so the early 90s. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting um, song, I think, just in terms of putting forward some of the complexities in terms of um, just assuming um, guilt for somebody. And uh, the, and the whole case is quite interesting just to look at how that, of course, that guilty um, verdict came to be and some of the different um, uh, issues around that too. My God, the amount of generosity that you would have to have mm. to um, forgive that when you come out of jail. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think, I believe he's a, he's a community worker wow. um, right now, too. Wow. Oh. Anyway, um, back to our interview. Um, things I wanted to ask you was about your research, your PhD. Mm. Um, how did you, um, what sort of field work did you do to, to research restorative justice? Um, yeah, so for my PhD, um, the thing that I was interested in then, so I I'd, I'd worked before that um, in the States for many years in, in restorative justice um, in terms of within the justice system, um, and then became a teacher and many other things. And, and uh, at that point, um, I was really, uh, I had a very um, perhaps idealistic, um, very transformative view of what restorative justice could do in schools. And um, I saw it as a very radical, um, different approach to the way things are being done in schools. And what I was curious about was if students experienced it that way as well. Because as adults, we often would talk about it as this really different, radical thing. Um, But what actually happens when it trickles down to the student experience? What, what are they thinking of it? So I, I um, wanted to look at it in two different contexts, two different places. So I was in one school in Canada, um, in a province uh, in the West, Alberta, a primary school. And I was in one school in Scotland, um, in a secondary school. And so, of course, just by that 
their different contexts, primary and secondary. But then I was also curious about in different countries, you know, there's different discussions that happens, there's different politics, there's different histories, there's different um, cultural sort of discourses. And so I wanted to um, go to those two different places and kind of think about what are all these things that kind of reverberate down to the student experience. And then within those schools, of course, schools all have different cultures too, um, looking at that and looking at the ways they understood restorative justice, how the teachers understood it, what they were hoping that it was doing, and then down to the students. And so I, with the students, um, I ran learning circles with them where um, they were uh, positioned as the expert of their own experience, which of course they are, um, where they were teaching me and each other really about their own experience of school, what it, what it felt like, what it looked like, um, really broadly, not just about restorative justice, but broadly about the school experience. And then there was also about 20 in each school that were um, sort of like my, um, we, we named it detectives, um, sort of like co-researchers, where for three days, they just took note of their school. They had um, little notepads. They just wrote down, took note of um, what ever they thought was significant during those three days and then came to me after those three days and walked me through the notebooks and also their own experiences what they thought of it analyzing it themselves to think about you know this is this is what I experience this is what I think it means this is why I think it happened this is what is it typical of our you know usual experience in schools or you know was this an aberration that happened here and so they really, um, I was really just learning from them as much as I could to try to get to their experience because it's pretty hard as an adult researcher to really understand what's, what's happening. So it was, it was the way I tried to get as close as I could to, to understanding their own experience. And um, what I discovered, which perhaps is not surprising, but is that restorative justice is not um, inherently transformative. It is, there are things about it, there's, it's a philosophy that opens up the space for transformation and for real connection and empowerment of students, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it, it is a, it's a pretty open idea, and so it sort of takes on the character of the school. I was going to say that um, I've read some more recent research that you have done recently, and you were just reflecting on um, schools that use this approach with students, but they don't necessarily, necessarily apply that to themselves, to, mm -hmm. the, to the adults. That's right. And that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. And so the Canadian school in this study actually was one that um, the teachers were really interesting because they, um, they started the conversation about, about just that, that, saying, okay, we are asking our students to do this, but we're not actually doing it ourselves. Like, we have conflict in our teacher staff room we have issues with one another but we don't ask ourselves to sit down and talk those conflicts through we don't ask um we don't sit in circle for our staff meetings you know it's pretty hierarchical and so they really held themselves to account which was interesting because although they were pointing out sort of the hypocrisy in what they were doing um they were they were grappling with it they were dealing with it they were even by they were airing it, by talking yeah. about it that, that was in itself a restorative justice exactly process exactly yeah. yeah yeah so I mean I would say that the main takeaway from that from my study was that um, it doesn't have to be restorative justice but I think we have to really think through what is our intention in using whatever approach we're using is it to um, 
control students? Is it to seek compliance um, that we want them to follow the rules and we want them to follow the rules nicer? And so we use restorative <laughs> justice to make that happen? Or is it that we actually want to um, facilitate connections, that we actually want to facilitate them feeling that they have more of a voice and empowering and are able to actually call attention to the things that are not working, maybe within the school system that are not working. But to really, um, as a critical thinking sort of um, activity. So what is it that we're wanting to do and how are we going to get there? Kristen, I, I realize as well now that, so before we were talking about the importance of relationships and circle time and... Um, but we, I think it, it would be good for our listeners to hear a little bit about how um, we can use restorative justice to deal with a particular conflict hmm. or harm that has been done. Um, would you be able to walk us through a you know, hypothetical example or something like that you know, of how this would be done? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the one thing that, that is sort of important to note is just the difference of, in the questions that you ask, because I think that's, that gets to kind of the key um, difference in terms of what kind of an approach a restorative approach is. So um, often when something happens, so let's say in a school, um, say uh, that there has been uh, a window broken in the classroom. So the teacher might come in, you know, oh, who's done it? And once we figure out who's done it, what are we going to do to them? You know, what is, what is their punishment mm -hmm. going to be? So those are sort of the typical questions um, that we ask in, in a retributive system or a mainstream kind of yeah. system. Um, and the different questions to ask from a restorative point of view is, first of all, what happened? So just opening it up, just being curious about, okay, I, something has obviously happened here. So what, what was it? You know, and who do we need to talk to about that? So what are the, who are the people? And it may be, two people, it may be five people that we need to kind of bring together to hear the fullness of the story. So what happened? And that might, so if we're thinking of a circle in that, that might be involved hearing from each person um, their perspective of that story. Um, who has been harmed is the next question to ask. And so instead of simply moving to what are we going to do to punish the person who's done that, but Again, thinking a bit more broadly. So who has been harmed by this? There's a broken window here. Um, one, I mean, what the reason was for it, but then um, if maybe it was in retaliation for something, maybe it was um, simply to, uh, well, we don't know what the reason is, but the people that might have been harmed, there might be individuals or it might be um, maybe the person who has to clean up this broken window. It might be, the classroom that can no longer meet in this room because there's a broken window. There's all these sort of like um, knock-on effects that you need to think about. So in terms of who's been impacted and then how they've been impacted. And then the last question really is what do we need to do from here? And so what do we need to do um, to fix this immediate um, issue, so the broken window? Um, but what do we need to do to maybe if people have become um, fearful, or as there's been now um, an issue with trust in the classroom. So what do we need to do to restore that? What do we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? So did someone do this in anger um, at something? Well, what's our, what are other things that we can do next time rather than reacting in that way? What are ways that we can open up those lines of communication? So the process there isn't one set way that the process needs to go forward, but those are sort of the key things that we need to focus on. The harm and what do we do about it. 
it's a very different conversation mm. mm-hmm. yeah wow all right so um time for another music break i reckon um this is a bit of a favorite of mine so let's see what people think as well All right, uh, 98.9 is the radio station, the people station, um, broadcasting from a little sh- um, shed in Hatfield. Um, and the show is Mad Village. It is now, what, 11 to 10. And Alec is in the building, so um, you, you'll be able to spend the morning with him a bit later on. But for the next 11 minutes, you're stuck with us. And um, my guest this morning is doc- Dr. Kristin uh, Reimer from Monash University. And we've been talking about restorative justice. And what was the song we just heard? Oh, that was Hallelujah. Um, a very Canadian song since it was written by Leonard Cohen. And, but this was sung by Katie Lang, who is an incredible woman from Western um, Canada as well. I was going to ask you, is um, Alanis Morissette Canadian as well? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, she is. Yeah, so. All right. So um, I wanted to ask mm. you a little bit about um, restorative justice in schools mm. in Australia. What, mm. um, how, how much has that been taken up and how well are people doing it? Yeah. Um, well... Part of why I was actually really excited to come to Australia was um, because of the work being done here. And Australia was actually the very first place that restorative justice was used in a school. Um, so in the early 90s, uh, it started and um, started sort of bubbling up these ideas. Of course, they were within the criminal justice system at first, and then people were starting to see a real connection to um, the use in schools. And so the, um, Terry O'Connell in Wagga Wagga was working with the police then and um, started to have different conversations and do some interventions in schools. And Mark Thorsburn was up in Queensland and they started talking to one another. She was a counselor in a school. And so um, she started to use restorative justice with some incidents there. So it did come into schools in terms of um, dealing with with a specific incident. Um, and the one in Queensland was a, an assault at a school dance, that sort of thing that they saw um, there uh, um, a nice alignment with the with the processes that were being used within the criminal justice system, and so the very first study was actually done then in Queensland exactly 25 years ago. So this is sort of the 25th anniversary this year of restorative justice um, in schools and being studied um, in schools. So there was a lot going on in Australia in the early 90s, and then a little bit of research for another decade, kind of after that. And then there's been um, pretty much no research in the last, or, or at least very minimal research in the last 10 years, which has been interesting. Um, because all around the world, restorative justice in schools as an idea, as a practice, has really just grown um, dramatically. And the research has grown dramatically. So whereas before it was much more um, pretty base um, research in terms of trying to just get a handle on does it work? You know, in terms of the numbers, or do suspensions go down, um, do detentions go down, that sort of thing. And it's become much more nuanced in the research. So looking at, especially in the States, looking at um, issues of equity. So who gets um, 
um, called upon for restorative processes? How does it get used in different schools um, depending on racial makeup or depending on um, different economic regions within areas? And also um, asking some more questions qualitatively about the student experience of restorative justice or about how educators are understanding it, what they're wanting it to, to do. Whereas here, there hasn't really been much research at all in the last little while. The practice continues, and there's great um, things happening. There are educators and principals um, who are really bringing restorative justice in in a holistic manner in schools. And so I've been going this last year and just visiting schools, um, mostly in Victoria, but other states as well, just to sort of ask some questions, just to get a sense of what's going on and how how it's being used. Uh, so Kristen, would this be something that is used in schools or is it something that happens mostly in s what we call flexible learning options? Uh, no, any, any school, mainstream schools for sure. Um, there might be um, more of a um, an openness perhaps in, in some of the, the more flexible or, or alternative schools, um, but it is something that it really depends on the principal often, whether it's a philosophy mm. that they um, connect with or not. But so what um, this year is actually going to be for me is a year to kind of use that sort of 25th anniversary idea and just take stock of what is actually happening. So in a little while, I'll actually be doing a national survey to get a sense of how many schools are using restorative justice because we have no idea right now. It could be 5% of schools. It could be 80% of schools. We just, we just don't know. And then to dig in a little bit um, deeper to the schools that are using it. And I'll be going in and sort of doing case studies, creating videos of what's happening so that schools that are interested can actually see, okay, in this place, this is how they use it. This is what, this is the impact that they think it's had for them and their students. And this is really on a practical level what they're doing. And this school, it looks different. It looks this way because they have a different population of students who have different needs or they understand it differently. Okay, that's another way to do it. And so what I'm hoping this year is kind of use it thinking of the history to sort of say, okay, this is where we were, this is where we are, and you know, what can we imagine in terms of how we can use restorative justice in schools um, to humanize education in some ways, to help us to connect with one another um, and move forward. And is there a particular school in Victoria that you have visited and you felt inspired by what they're doing? There's actually been several. Um, and you get that sense right when you walk in the door. Like there's just there's just a different feel about it. Um, and just as we talked before about the different questions that are asked, that sort of can become embodied. There's a curiosity in the school. There's a there's an openness and a connection. Um, and as you walk through the halls, and you can see circles happening in classrooms. You can see um, you talk to students, and they, maybe they welcome you into their classroom. They show you an inquiry project they've been working on. It's just it's um you can't really pinpoint it in terms of one way that it's being done, but there is definitely a sensibility that that happens, I think, in a school that is embracing it in a holistic manner. Wow, um, that sounds uh, really fantastic. Um, is there like um, are there is there like a national conference in Australia or anything that brings pe people together about this? Um, there are there are bits and pieces. So Victoria has the. Um, 
um, Victoria Association of Restorative Justice. It's not just for schools, but they do also sometimes have a forum um, where people come together. Um, there's Restorative Practices International, but it's based up in, in Queensland, and they do um, some more sort of national-focused events. But but people are quite scattered. Like I think, and that's part of what I'm hoping to do this year, mm. is say there's all these amazing things happening, all these amazing people who are really committed to this. We need to talk to, with one another a bit more. And so what I'm hoping is to create a national um, website with also a national um, sort of social media groups um, where we can share those ideas and we can support one another and, and perhaps challenge one another too to even push our practice a bit a bit deeper. It sounds uh, really interesting. Uh, we could we could use another hour for this, but we, unfortunately we for, we've run out of time. Uh, Kristen, what what are you going to li be leaving our our listeners with? Ah. Uh, that's our last track. <laughs> this is Susan Aglukark. Um, she's an Inuit woman. Um, she's going to be singing Amazing Grace in Inuktitut, um, which is her, her language. And it's actually at a restorative justice conference I was at. Um, she was there and uh, singing this song. And it happened 10 minutes after I met my now husband. So we also played it at our wedding. So it's a <laughs> kind of personal connection. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. No worries. And we will see you all next week. Tatang na mi sa'y ma'y